Hello and welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world. Brought to you by the satellite application Catapult, I'm Dallas Campbell and in this series we shall be in conversation with some of the most inspiring minds in the country, exploring the ways that the UK is using space to make huge differences to our everyday lives, as well as gaining a better understanding of its role in shaping and sustaining our planet for the future. Now then, in today's episode, we are exploring the concept of digital twins. And I'm joined in the studio by Mark Hennan, Senior Earth Observation Consultant at the Satellite Applications Catapult. Also, we have Simon Evans, the Global Digital Energy Leader at the engineering firm Arup and remotely all the way from Reading by Peter Bauer, the director of Destination Earth at the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts. Digital twin, it's an interesting term. It's a virtual representation of a real world physical counterpart. They use sophisticated data models to accurately simulate changes or problems using the virtual environment to test and monitor potential scenarios without ever altering the physical counterpart. And this enables users to run various simulations and to plan for or prevent any issues before they become a problem. A digital twin is a powerful decision-making tool, but the system is, of course, reliant on data and can only be as good as the data that it's provided with. One potential source of information is Earth observation data collected from space. Advancements in launch technology and the small satellite market have exponentially increased the amount of EO data that's available. And this new wealth of data could play a huge role in the future of digital twins and their potential to manage and mitigate the risks of failure in all manners of human enterprise, as we shall see. Just before we we start on talking about digital twins, actually, it sounds quite Matrix digital twins. There is something quite sci-fi and Matrixy about it, but I'm quite interested in, in what it is you do and, and what your interests are. So I might start with Peter. Peter, just tell us a little bit about what you're up to at the moment and where you work. So I, I work for a European organization that's called European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, which is a long title, uh, but in the end, it's a, an operational weather prediction service. Yeah that does global weather predictions, and it happens to be the world leader. It's a European organization that sits in the UK. And uh, we're doing this uh, every day. And obviously, weather forecasts are very important for saving lives uh, and property. Mm -hmm. uh, and the better we can do this, the more lives and more uh, value we can save. And we're right now running, uh, on behalf of the European Commission, a big program that's called Destination Earth, which is all about digital twins of the Earth system. Well, we'll come on to how all that works and what, what that is and digital twins in a moment. But weather, okay, so Mark, so Senior Earth Observation Consultant at the Satellite Applications Catapult. You work here, basically. This is it's a long intro. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I work for the Satellite Applications Catapult, where my main role is basically to kind of champion Earth observation data to people that don't necessarily know how to use it or would not typically use it in their everyday business. Okay and try to sort of promote growth in the well, UK space sector, from my perspective, particularly from Earth observation. 
So you're you're a, you're sort of selling it to the wider world. This idea, essentially, yeah. Okay, Earth observation. We did a podcast a bit about this before, so I'm not, I don't want to go too deeply into it, of course. But Earth observation, basically using satellites in orbit to monitor the Earth, exactly, as a, in yeah. very various different ways, and human activity and all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, looking after the environment as well, but also That's seeing a big how, one. yeah, <laughs> quite <laughs> important. But also, yeah, just monitoring how humans and, and nature are kind of getting along yeah. and making sure, you know, it's, it's sort of we're alerted in a timely manner uh, if anything's going wrong in the environment. Great. And Simon, global digital leader at Arab, who are a huge engineering firm. Everywhere I look, actually, Arab's one of those companies that you, that you don't really hear much about. And then everything you look at, they're there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you see the logo something. everywhere. That's yeah. it. So just tell us a, a little bit about Arab and, and what you do for them. So global digital energy leader. That's oh, God, did I get it wrong? There. That's, that's global right. digital energy leader. Yeah. Shame on me. Sorry. That's no problem at all. So as the kind of title suggests, I look after digital within our energy sectors at Arab. Yeah. And that means how we can use any type of internet era technology to enhance and enable the work we do within the energy, energy sector. Okay. Um, but I've also got another role as well where I look after digital twins for Arab which of course is the reason I'm here today. Babysitting. (laughs) Look after the digital twins. (laughs) A lot more in that, how we can see how this mega trend will really impact the work we do. Great. So you're all in in the same sort of field, but slightly, you know, we've got weather, we've got energy, and we've got promotion, if, if you like. So let's nail down, if we can, this term digital twin that you've all you've all mentioned. I kind of can assume I know what it means, but who wants to have a crack at defining it for, for those who've maybe... Not if Peter's shaking his head. He looks. Peter looks worried That's, on the screen. There. Uh, it means many things to many people. Does it mean many it things does. to many things? Okay, yeah. well, okay, you volunteered then, Simon. Oh, so no problem. So give, give us a definition of my um, my favorite frame in this when I talk about it is for a lot of people it is a bit like a unicorn. It could be this huge concept that could do so much, uh, but in its simplest definition, it's about having a digital version of something physical, okay. and that digital version. It can be a really detailed model of it, or it could be something really simple like a, a 2D map or system. Is connected two ways. So you have data flowing from a physical space to a digital space, yeah. and then you have a connection somehow back from that digital space to the physical space. How do you mean a connection? Connection, a way of making an intervention into your physical world based off what you decide to do, the insights that you derive. So you get information from your digital twin, and then you make decisions based on that information that's it in essence yeah somehow you get data from a physical world a physical environment make decisions from that data when it's in a digital space whatever that digital space might look like and then make those interventions which in itself sounds quite (laughs) complex but the the simplest way of saying it is about connecting cyber physical things together Blending our side physical world. All I can think of is the Matrix, though. All I can think of is that kind of model, that other sort of separate (laughs) Earth. Um, Peter, can I ask you, are you happy with that definition? Because as a weather person, I mean, you know, you've always used models when it comes to predicting the weather. So what's the difference between a normal weather prediction model that you might have used and, and a digital twin? Are we just being, is it just a fancy name? No, no, no. It's it's exactly the right question, actually, because we're we're struggling explaining digital twins to the level where pe- people actually understand what the difference of a digital twin or the added value of a digital twin is compared to what we presently do with our weather systems. So, you know, the way weather prediction works is it, we use a lot of satellite data, about 100 million observations per day. We have a big simulation model and we combine the two every day, you know, to kind of uh, reflect what's going on out there in every detail we possibly can simulate and observe. And then we use that knowledge to predict the future. And that's tomorrow's weather, weather forecast. 
But that's only one way, you know, and that's exactly what was described before. So here you observe and you simulate, and this, uh, this information goes only one way from the real system into the, into the uh, digital system. So it becomes a digital twin if you actually, with that knowledge, drive certain decisions in your real system, like you would say, you know, I have my digital replica in the computer, and because I'm predicting a serious floods in the Netherlands tomorrow, I change, if I could, I change my land surface prediction or the dikes near the surface to then see what happens. And I can play through whether actually for tomorrow's system that would be enough. So it's not just having a load of data to, to compare the two. You can actually change parameters. You can actually fiddle with things. You go, pl- absolutely. You can play through and optimize it. And, and you know, and that, this is, I think that's a good example. But for me, what works almost better is if you would take the human body as an example, and you would say, you know, I have a digital simulation of you, and I observe you at the same time with heart rate and, and everything you can observe, constant uh, x-rays and ultrasounds, uh, you know, and that gives me the, the best possible digital replica of you, you know, and then I want to understand actually whether, uh, you know, a disease is coming up or if something happens to you and you're not, you're not feeling well, what's actually going on? And what kind of medication I could give you or what kind of surgery I could apply to you to make you feel better. I can play through this in, a, in the most realistic context and then try it out. And that becomes extremely important for us when it comes to weather extremes or climate change. I thought, but know? just before we... We want to know what's going on in 30 years and how to prepare our society in the best possible way. And the digital twins are the way to do this. I'm just trying to still get my head around. Is, is it different to a computer model? Then I, su- I suppose no, I'm just. No, is it th- is no. it the same thing? So that's your matrix analogy. It, at the heart sits a computer model that is supported by observations. But right. as we heard before, you know you can play this in, in different at different levels of complexity. Uh, it can be a very simple thing that's only based on observations. Yeah. But you know, ultimately, for the Earth system, because you have to consider, you know, vegetation is important. The ice in the Antarctic is important. The urban heat effects over Reading are important, you know. Uh, so all of this is important. So you need to have a very complex simulation in the end to uh, realistically re- represent everything that matters. Got it. And then you, you, can, you can simulate various scenarios and see how things pan out. I think a very um, <clears throat> good like, real-world kind of um, example of this twin is your satellite navigation. If you're going to to drive somewhere, yeah, you plug into your sat nav where you want to go, and the digital version of your car and your journey will be created for you, and it will use all kinds of different information based on like road traffic, the sort of fastest route there, and predict when you're going to arrive. But as you continue your journey, it will continually monitor where you are on your journey, how fast you're going, what are the traffic patterns around you, and continually update wh- how you, when you're going to arrive and give yeah. you the best instructions of how to get there. Thing that drives me crazy about that. So I drove up from London to Oxford today, and I left really early. I left at you know I can't remember it was like six, half past six, and I said, "Oh, it's only going to take an hour." It'll take an hour, and of course I drove for an hour, and it was still going to be an hour after an hour. So it never gets. So I want it to predict better than it predicts of them. I don't want to need a better certain enough. Well, is that what I need? <laughs> well, I think that's the interesting thing. Reflecting on both those kind of definitions of it. What makes a digital twin different from a model or simulation is probably the difference between, let's say, something like Google Maps and your sat-nav, in that there has to be some type of feedback loop. If you're just taking data from a physical world and kind of modeling it, Mm. that's just a model. That's just a simulation. You have to have a two-way feedback, physical to digital, digital to physical. And that loop is what defines a twin over, as I say, a model or simulation. 
one of the powers of a digital twin as well is, is connecting that live data into the into the digital twin. So you Ooh, can actually... Live. Does it have to be live? That's the question. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about the live because I, I suppose that's the when I think of you know a computer model, for example, I'm mm. not necessarily thinking of live data that's continuously... Well, a model will be based on some physical aspects that have been parameterized into the model, but the digital twin model, you can personalize that model to the exactly to that um, thing that you're looking at. So... If you're developing a, a model on how a potential house might react to certain situations, it will be generic to all houses, for example. Mm. But if you make one for your house, which has a certain you know as aspect or has certain features inside, then that model will be much more accurate because you actually use real-time data to continually kind of train your model to be reacting to your, your house. So I think there's an interesting thing here about real-time versus right-time. Yes. And I say that, and in, in Peter's example of the weather system, having real-time data, you know, instant data, millisecond data, is sometimes applicable. But in a lot of cases, it's about having right-time, the right-time data based on decisions and the questions you're trying to answer. So if you're modelling a city, you mm. might not necessarily need to know pedestrian movements down to the near a second because that's irrelevant mm. but you would need to know water flow for example if you're doing flood monitoring so having the appropriate amount of data in maybe right time to answer the questions you're trying to answer wow who was it i think it was there was a mathematician george box i think it was he said all models are wrong but some are useful this <laughs> was his thing and i understand what he means by that i mean a model is an, is a an approximation of a physical system and yet you're never going to get it right but it but it tells mm. you stuff but I'm sensing from what you're saying about digital twin, this is taking that, but making it much more by the fact that you have live data and it's real time and right time. Uh, uh, so right, oh God, I'm getting, right time. Right, well, yeah, right time. time I mean, it depends on what you're trying to twin. Yeah. For example, yes. if you're twinning yeah. a glacier which moves very slowly, you don't need data instantly. You can get it monthly. That's but if, interesting. But something like so with Peter, for example. I mean, the, the thing with weather, it's so. I mean, weather systems are so ridiculously complex. Mm. I don't. I mean. It, it, is the sort of digital twin in inverted commas that you use and work with? Is it does it give you sort of perfectly accurate predictions and no, well to the to the limit of how accu accurately we know processes in the atmosphere, because you know, we don't know everything. Mm. Uh, or can't cast everything in an in equation or model. So our models are imperfect, our observations are imperfect, so there are uncertainties. Uh, which limits our skills in, in weather prediction and climate prediction, you know. And mm. of course, with digital twins, not only through this two-way functionality, but also by using and investing in much better observations and much better ways to combine this with very sophisticated models, we try to increase the skill and actually make that digital twin interactivity work. Mm. But I wanted to say one, one more thing about the, the, the distinction and, and life and at the right time and things, you know. I'd say maybe one... Um, one distinction could be whether you're operating something or whether you're designing something. You know, operation uh, has a lot to do with real real time and life. You know, because you're operating something and you want to op operate that smooth smoothly without failures and let's say energy efficiently if it's a factory or something. For this, you need live data. Uh, and there's other things where you're designing something and your digital twin can actually help you make the right design decisions. And, you know, if we think about a sustainable society in the future, Green Deal, these kind of things, you know, how do we restructure our energy systems and renewable energies and water management in the future? You know, their digital twins also have a role in designing the system right, given the present knowledge and how we can predict future states and all that. Mark, can you just give us a few? I mean, we've talked about weather, obviously. We've talked a little bit about energy. Just give us a few real-world examples that people who are listening 
can maybe a bit surprised about that we that digital twin technology is that the right word not never technology oh crikey simon's he's quite finickety simon if you say something well i say because there's a lot of misnomers around it and i think Uh, that that can be really challenging because as kind of peter and mark was saying the concept is become quite clouded in platitudes you can basically use the word digital twin and it makes it sound glamorous yeah and kind of avoid the point of what you're trying to do, which is answer some particular yes. use cases. I guess, sorry to... to so but why is technology, why, was the, why is that the well, wrong word? So because what that alludes to is you have to buy something, let's say, and install it onto your computer, and that's your digital twin. Yeah. But if we think actually a digital twin is about connecting a physical and digital world, yeah. it's not a product, it's not a technology, it's actually really a methodology and right. an approach. Okay. And it's that approach of connecting physical digital worlds rather than I'm going to buy a piece of software from X vendor, install it, and bam, there's my digital twin. Got it. I think a key point of that is that there are new use cases for digital twins all the time. Exactly. So like, you know, some yeah. of the, the kind of more traditional use of digital twins, which is mostly probably in the built environment, in, in infrastructure, digital twins are starting to go beyond those now. We're going to different things. We, you know, Peter's already mentioned healthcare and people producing digital twins of, of human beings for medical care. But, you know, we got to things like manufacturing and sort of looking at um, process lines and stuff like that. We've also got the kind of uh, things of public good. So I know that Fujitsu, for example, developed a digital twin for a tsunami warning where you take real-time data, people using an application, telling the, the, where, the twin where they are, a tsunami alert happens, and it can tell us people where to go, best routes for escape. We've got other things like, we mentioned Google Maps, but everyone's carrying a smartphone these days, you know, and there's, that can create data, which we can, you know, inform you on, on things like purchases or healthcare or things to do you know, your personal routines. Um, so that there are digital twins being created all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, from the Casper, we're trying really interested to see how space can get involved with that and how we can actually start using observation data to really help those twins. Yeah, well, maybe maybe you could just expand on that. So where does Earth observation and artificial intelligence fit into digital twin methodology? It's very, very new. Like we would kind of just come. I mean, Peter and the guys at ECMWF and, and Destination Earth, were one of the first kind of real big users of, of EO data in a digital twin kind of environment. Right. The thing to remember with um, EO data is mostly it's at scale. You know, you, just, you can start. How do you mean it's at scale? Massive. So a lot of digital twin stuff is used from point scale data. So you get like sensors on a piece of machinery, which will feed the information to the twin about what that machine's doing. But with satellites, you know, we can we can observe landscapes, you know, in quite good detail and and, and very rapidly. And mm. it's about how we use that data and what was that most most useful for. To date, most of it's for kind of environmental stewardship. So kind of keeping an eye on the environment, uh, making sure that the digital twin is aware of what's going on, provide timely alerts about certain things, factors that are happening, improve our modeling ability, and be able to sort of make uh, informed decisions when it comes to our environments, whether that's policy yeah. or, or developments and stuff like that. Okay. is it? I mean, all these different areas of human life, I suppose, as well as Earth monitoring and weather and weather systems, Earth systems, do you guys sort of talk to each other? Is is it kind of like the, the idea is you'll kind of create a, a sort of perfect replica of the Earth in digital form down to the sub-millimetre? And, and then, you know, whenever a problem arises, we can go, oh, off we go to our digital twin and, and sort of poke it a bit and see what happens. Yes and no. I mean, it comes back to the question, do you have to talk to everybody? Is everything relevant for everything else? You know, so I, I think in our context, we certainly want to go down to city scale 
uh, we want to use Earth observation data for everything that relates to weather and land surfaces. And I think there's a lot of overlap there. Mm. Uh, we haven't tapped into mobile phones quite yet, but that will come uh, car sensors as well. So, mm. hey, What do you I mean tapping say, into mobile phones? Why would you do that? Because they map as much your internet traffic as they could map uh, surface pressure or temperature or moisture or pictures you take that contain clouds wherever you are, you know. So in theory, all of this is an observation that we can use uh, in the in the future of digital twins. Mm -hmm. You know, so you, 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 bear, you basically carry along with you in, in your car, if you have a clever car. Uh, and your mobile phone and observatory, you know, and of all kinds, in all kinds of ways. And that uh, can help us to support the information we're gathering. How important do you think digital twins will be in things like helping us figure out solutions to climate change? I mean, is, is this going to be a, a, a really big, yeah. big thing? It's, in the future, every asset process or system in the world will have a digital twin. And that's the way it's going. And what that means is, again, it's going to have some type of digital version of itself. And that might sound like a bit of a whoa, big, scary movement. But what it's really talking about is how you can connect digital twins together. So everything we've talked where about Where they today, need to be connected. Exactly. Yeah. Where they need to Absolutely. be connected. So sometimes you have schools of thought of people thinking, we're going to make a one giant digital twin of the world, a planetary digital twin, if you will. But that's a ludicrous notion, because from a, a com computational basis, it's impossible. Yeah, but it would look awesome. Well, but, but what is more about is <laughs> well, the federated it's, effect. It's not, too, yeah. it's not too far out, though. I, I, yeah. I, I agree with the statement before. You know, it, it, It's probably not going to be a single digital twin, but in the end, it doesn't matter. I guess for the... You know, in, in the end, it's probably a collection and a hierarchy of digital twins where what we do in Destination Earth is your global picture that goes down, that covers everything down to, let's say, 100 meter scales or something. But then you have specialized digital twins underneath. You know, one is for the city of London or one is for uh, an energy farm in, in the North Sea. And the third is about, is about agriculture in Spain or something. And then you have micro twins on, on, on a specific factory or, or a house or something uh, mm -hmm. sitting underneath there, you know. But they, they share common elements in terms of methodologies. And this is why I liked what was said before about it's not a technology, it's a methodology. But it relies, of course, on technology to work, you know. And depending on how big or complex your system is, it actually indeed requires enormous computing and enormous amounts of data to work, particularly if it's done on the fly, you know, in real time. Absolutely. And I think the interesting part in that is that every single one of those twins is going to be owned by a different person in some capacity. And they share the relevant information in a secure way with each other to answer system-wide challenges. So, for example, in the UK, and coming back to my work in energy now, there's a lot of work happening in the UK around how you can make an energy system digital twin or the virtual energy system, as it's called, mm -hmm. where you can allow every asset within the energy system to talk to each other, like the internet is how computers talk, mm -hmm. to allow you to answer system-wide challenges. Now, we're talking about Earth observation here. If you can connect Earth observation and actually every sector together, you could, for example, ask questions about climate change, and using all the array of different information and modelling you have across all the different uh, sectors and systems, come up with various scenarios and solutions. Mm -hmm. So to your original question, what is the role that digital twins as a methodology or an approach have in climate change or in the future? They're going to be intrinsic. We're going to see them more and more in everything we do. And is it going to speed up the transition, particularly the energy sector, away from traditional energy? Well, that's it. What, one new, kind of, new types of if we look at digital twins, again, being connecting physical digital things, mm. uh, we know in the literature that says this, that 
in order for us to decarbonize, we need to connect systems together. And connecting systems requires some type of exchange of data. And it doesn't matter what sector you are. So you can draw a line there saying, if we really want to achieve these net zero targets, we need to really lean into digitalization and arguably digital twins in some capacity. But proportionately, because of course you can latch onto that and go, great, I'm going to spend all this money answering use cases that aren't relevant rather than answering really relevant use cases that will help you on your journey. I think an important thing to remember with, with, with climate change is that, you know, we are sort of having to make decisions in cre- increasingly pressured, you know, environments, yeah. whether it's fiscal pressures or just time, running out of time to be able to provide all the sustainable infrastructure that the globe is going to need going forward with increased pressures from, from climate change, but also from population growth, economic pressures and these kind of things. And digital twins allow us to kind of plan and predict in a kind of digital yeah. space so we can kind of get it wrong there until we find the, the most optimal solution and then implement that in real life. So it's a bit t- a test bed almost, a way yes, of sort absolutely. of practicing advice. Yes. Could one of you maybe just give me, I mean, we've talked a lot about various areas and aspects. A, a sort of working example of when someone has d- done this and used a digital twin in order to do something or to try something or to test something. Yeah, so there's a number of examples. One classic one that people resonate with is how you could use a digital twin to improve building performance or its environment for the occupants. In, so, in terms of what? Performance for what? So let's say you have a building, uh, your office block, let's say. Okay. It's going to have lots of sensors in it, as they all do, that are collecting information about the CO2 levels, uh, the oxygen levels, the temperature, humidity, etc. And you can take all that information, you can use that to understand a model. What happens if you made this change, for example? Let's say we pump more oxygen to this place, or we reconfigure the building this way. How would that provide a better outcome or a worse outcome for the occupants? So you can in, in basically inform your decision-making through scenario modeling. And the key back to the digital twin is that you have to have that connection back into the physical. If you just do a model, well, we've been doing that for well, a long time. It's just SimCity. It's, just, it's just SimCity, okay, but it's, yeah. it's SimCity that then updates the real world again. It's like, a it's really like good connecting SimCity to your real city. That's, there we go. That's, that's it. SimCity, but plugged into the real world. So you... And if it's not plugged in, it's not a digital twin. Got it. It has to have that feedback loop. Nice. Okay. I want to know about, because I know the... ESA, the European Space Agency, they've got their Digital Twin of Earth project. Are you, are you any of you guys involved in that? Yeah, we have been involved uh, marginally because the, the program uh, was started at the same time as we started the, the thinking around Destination Earth. And I would say the distinction between the two is that, first, it's an ESA-only program that's subscribed to and, and funded by ESA member states as opposed to European Commission, uh, as is, is the case for Destination Earth. Um, and it's mostly Earth observation focus. So I'm, I'm, I would actually claim that the uh, the ESA program doesn't really look so much into this two way connection that we just spoke about, and that we consider uh, the an important distinction between you know shadowing the real world or, or you know observing what's going on, monitoring change and things, uh, as opposed to this this two way direction, you know, uh, with a with, with a modeling part uh, at the center. So I think it's uh, it's more complementary program. I'm just sort of wondering what the aims of yeah. it were, like why they started it, like what what specifically were the aims of the ESA project that that's different to what other people are doing. I, I think it's 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 trying to add value uh, to the Earth observation data or extract value right, from Earth observation data, yeah, yeah. which is ESA's primary mission. Yeah. They launch and operate satellites and, and derive products from that. Uh, and I think it's to up the game uh, using such data for the purpose of, uh, of of Earth system monitoring. Yeah. 
Mark, as someone, I mean, your your job is to sell this, I suppose. I mean, he's grimacing at me. Not sell it, not like you know, sort of door to door. But I'm just sort of interested in what your sort of day to day activities are. So I think uh, the Catapult, we're um, kind of it's a two way street. So we we are trying to obviously promote EO data to to those who maybe don't necessarily use it. But um, we're also doing research in house uh, and working within the, the uh, sort of listening to the other the community and seeing what are the requirements of, of eo data and digital twins obviously is kind of an existing uh concept but it's also you know it's evolving and, and it could in, in include eo data but we we need to understand what are the kind of use cases for eo data it's, it's important to remember with observation data at the moment we're going through a kind of a, a new era in the kind of commercialization of the space industry where you know launch the space is much cheaper than it ever has been before you know even the development and uh, construction of satellites is cheaper than ever so the industry can be much more kind of dynamic and reactive to the requirements of the users. So we want to keep our ear out and hear from from you guys, the developers or the mm. users, what, what data do you need? Because there's an opportunity here for us to start developing bespoke missions that could feed data directly into these digital twins for uh, for, for even smaller assets, you know, for yeah. city scales. You know, there are, there are new products being released all the time. You get satellites as small as 30 centimeters long being launched. Looking at kind of bespoke missions like looking at air pollution, for example, you can develop a constellation that looks specifically at air, at air pollution, which would be... So rather than having to... satellites that would do multiple things, you'd Absolutely, get much yeah. more specific things that would yeah. just... Because yeah. it's... So, I, mean, I suppose from all of your points of view, how important is this new satellite revolution, the fact that presumably access to low Earth orbit is getting cheaper and easier, satellites are getting smaller and cheaper. Is it a real game changer for... Peter. I, yeah, I think I think it is. I think you need both, though. You know, I think you need specialists like uh, high definition, high spec laboratories, like what we presently have. You know, ESA satellites and Jupiter satellites and NOAA and NASA satellites. Mm. You know, these are hundreds of millions of pop. You know, plus launch, plus operations, and all that. So the, these are specialist observatories. It takes many years to to develop, but at the same time, and, and they really agree. You know, we need this this complementary systems that are. Easier to deploy, easier to design and maintain, easier to replace, you know. Um, so if one of these big satellites falls off the sky, it's hard to replace, you know. If you have mm -hmm. constellations of smaller satellites, less complicated, much easier to, to have a reliable, uh, continuous information source. And then in the end, also what you do with it, you know, it's not just launching stuff and, and having it in space, but what you, what you do with it. And there, you know, uh, away from the traditional, you know, public entities, launch satellites, collect the data, give it to everybody. You know, the diversification of use uh, that we will see for satellite data and digital twins in the end, you know, you can write a digital twin maybe tomorrow for something you care about and sell it to others, you know, having access to that huge digital twin technology that we're developing today. So there's, there's unprecedented opportunities for commercial companies in the future, both in data provision and use. Peter, you just said something I think is really interesting. It's what you do with it. That seems to be the thing. I often wonder that just the speed of transformation in terms of, well, methodologies and technologies, things getting smaller, cheaper, just AI becoming extraordinary. Is it kind of going too fast? Is the sort of politics and the business sectors keeping up with yeah. how fast things are going? It's a really interesting one because actually a common misconception we have around digital twins is there a new idea? Well, actually, one of the earliest examples is from the space industry, the Apollo 13 missions, where they used what they called at the time digital mirroring to bring the astronauts home safe. And since then, other sectors like manufacturing and aerospace have been all over digital twins for the last 30, 40 years. How do you, how do you mean for Apollo 13? They, how, how, what do they have a... 
Well, so they they were using simulation and modelling to help oh, bring the astronauts back. So having then, having the guys in the room with bits of old pipe and tubes. Essence, and yeah, that's a very tape. low maturity digital twin and one of the earliest examples. Now, why I say that and it's really interesting is the whole point of digital twins is, yeah, they're not new, but what's made them really exciting these days, and as we've kind of discussed, is that you now have that greater connectivity between physical, digital, digital, physical, which is sped up because of things like storage, compute, and connectivity, connectivity like 5G, for example, yeah. which means it's much faster than ever before. But it always has to be about the use case. Why are you doing it? Because you're not going to invest millions, billions of pounds if you have no real answer mm-hmm. or no real possible use case. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part. For me, it's understanding that it's, it's really a journey, not a destination when it comes to digital twins. Mm-hmm. You find your use case, you develop something that's valuable, and you keep on iterating. And because of this kind of confusion and people thinking it's new and it's not new, you have a huge wave of hype being created. Traditionally, what humans by, do. Humans love hype. Exactly, we love to big things exactly. up. As if it's like this new magical yeah. thing. It's like, well, actually, we've been doing this for a long time. It's just now we can see more value from it because of storage, computing, connectivity. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the future. We've only got a few more minutes left, but I'm, I'm interested in the direction of travel. Peter, from, from where you're sitting in Reading, what is the direction of travel? Where are, we, where are we going to be in a decade, say, do you think, in terms of what, what we'll be able to do and within the digital twin world? So I would, I, would, I would expect by then that we have a, a fairly accurate digital twin of the Earth system as a whole at global level down to the scales that I mentioned earlier, so hundreds of meters, uh, I would say, supported by very sophistic, sophisticated uh, simulation models that we don't have yet. Uh, and all the observations from, you know, uh, all the satellites to mobile phones and things. So I, I, th- I think we're going to have that. And we're going to have that hierarchy established as well, uh, not everywhere all the time, but for important assets uh, like, like you know, as I said, energy parks, you know, like wind parks or wind farms, agricultural systems, uh, flood protection systems. So everything that matters to society where presently all these structural investments go I think in 10 years, we will have a pretty good digital twin coverage of these, of these aspects. So basically, it will enable us to make better decisions. We'll, we'll have a That's sophistication. Right. We can That's make right. better decisions. So faster. Thing, better decisions faster. Better decisions faster. Yes. That's, that's good. So in terms yes. of things like climate change, because you're right here with this, using this, are you, are you optimistic that we'll be able to use this to make things better, to solve the real big existential issues? I am, but I think it depends on couple of things and the main thing is industry all industries collaborating now that might seem obvious we're terrible at collaborating but but the thing is because digital twins mean many things to many people everyone's creating their own ventures of it rather than let's say collaborating on the rules then competing on the game the results from it i think it's for us as industry all sectors to come together and work out how we can collectively make digital twins work for us as humanity and help humanity flourish in the future and if we don't really look at that and we continue to be isolated and siloed, I think we won't really get there. Mark, are you, are you happy with the speed in which people are understanding that th- this, I keep wanting to say technology, <laughs> I've just stopped myself, this methodology, or do we need a kind of an, an education program to, to... I don't think we necessarily do need an education program, but I think people just need to make 
use of it. So I think I don't think we need to necessarily know exactly how digital twin works. Much like my own internal analogy about the sat nav, you know, you don't need to know how that works. You just need to be able to make use of it. And I think if the industry starts to understand the kind of benefits from these things, then there'll be more opportunities to develop the right data sources and to get buy-in into the industry so that people will continually coming back to 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 look at digital twins. I mean, from from an EO perspective, again, we kind of we want to make sure that that's the capabilities are understood so that people don't get a kind of bad impression about what we're actually going to create. And so, you know, I think that that's the important thing, making sure that people can understand that what it can do, but not necessarily how it does it. I think that's that's the important thing. Mm. And I think it's about bringing people along in that education, isn't it, as, as appropriate as possible. And there are there are a number of communities out there, but there's one particularly in the UK or centred in the UK that's probably, I say, the world's foremost community, the Digital Twin Hub, which is the catapult, of course, knowing Wait, well. Wait, what, what's the Digital Twin Hub? Or, Explain the Digital Twin Hub. What is the Digital Hub? Twin Wait, Hub? missed this. What, the, the Digital Twin Hub is, uh, is many things, but it manifests as a community of Digital Twin practitioners, enthusiasts, people interested in it, that come together, exchange ideas and knowledge on the topic of Digital Twins. Do they dress up like in Tron? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure if you could have you wanted to but it's a really great it's some satellite catapults are actively involved as are many other catapults as are arab incidentally and it's a great way of bringing together people whatever their maturity and thinking and understanding to help share the best practices the ways of working the kind of use cases to make us all move forward together that's really interesting so the digital twin hub things like that what about i mean do you talk to politicians and decision makers i mean i, I look at the we are yeah we yeah. are and I, I i would like to re-emphasize a, a point that was made before uh, again about uh, collaboration i think uh, important for things like this to work in the end uh, so it's not compartmentalized but there's a real like system of systems if you wish you know the digital twin system of systems is that you agree on data standards, you agree on interfaces, you need certain reference systems, you know, that that you demonstrate new developments with that can't be everybody, but leading systems, you know, there needs to be a certain agreement for how to come together, actually, you know, uh, otherwise you will have, this will never, this will always be separate and you will, there's, you know, 20 competing systems and yeah. they exchange nothing and yes. cooperation doesn't happen. So this, it's very boring to, to talk about standards, you know. No, but it's, but really, it's really important. Necessary. I mean, I think about low earth orbit and what's going on on there and there are no real standards. I mean, countries do different things and have different systems and different ways of doing things. And as we become more and more reliant on low earth orbit for day-to-day living i kind of worry about crikey there's no real standard yet yeah and and that was to my point earlier of collaborate on the rules compete on the game we need to collaborate on the rules which are the standards the common approaches methodologies without necessarily having our commercial interests in mind but then when that game is created we can then compete on it based off our own company's USPs. Because mm. there's plenty of pie out there of digital twins to eat, if you will. But it's about having the common rule set, the taxonomies, the methodologies yeah. to allow this integration at a fundamental data level that will allow all this to succeed. Because if that doesn't exist, we're just going to be creating isolated computers. Um, just in a word, are you optimistic about the future? Working with this great with this great thing, are you do you kind of look at what you're doing, going, oh my god, this is awesome, or do you go, oh crikey, it's just giving me a headache? I, I think I look forward to it because the the opportunities for innovation in this area, you know, the the, the more data that comes on, the, the the more research we can do, the more kind of interesting new technologies, yeah, <laughs> we can we can develop. Um, I think that's really exciting, and I yeah. think um, that's that's definitely something I'm looking forward to. Peter, I'm interested in, in your career. You know, this has all come about pretty quickly, and I'm just from where you're sitting. 
Are you excited by it? Are you excited about the possibilities of the future? I'm very excited. And I, I believe that we're, in contrast to maybe 10 or 20 years ago, uh, we're now in a situation where uh, we actually have digital technologies that can really fulfill what digital twins require. Mm. And I think our society is ready as well, you know, in the sense of, I think everybody understood climate change and the impacts now. Yeah. Everybody is affected by extremes one way or another. We really understand the cost for our society now. It's hundreds of billions every year or trillions even worldwide. You know, the impacts of extremes, you know, just have to look at the at, at the documentation by the World Economic Forum, you know, or, or fora like this. So we know what the cost is of doing nothing. Yes. You know, and investments in this technology is marginal compared to what it'll bring to our society. And, and this is the economic aspect, as I said before, you know, if, if we understand, we start understand now the actual business potential in many of these areas. So apart from, you know, making our society more sustainable, there's actually money to make in that sector. And I think this will, in the end, trigger the real change. That's the, always the thing that triggers change, is if there's money at the, at the end of it. Thank you so much. What a fascinating discussion. What a fascinating subject. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to Thanks you. Thanks for having us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. Cheers. Have a safe Thank trip. you. Back to London. <laughs> With my bad sat-nav. No, if you had a digital twin, you could regulate traffic in your favour, you see. Really? <laughs> That's <laughs> yes. a bias of the digital twin. You would, you would monitor where you are, and you would see that the traffic is bad, and you would reroute traffic in the real world based on your digital expectation i like your analogy of a sat nav i think that's really good and google maps is great at this as well because it's bringing in different sources but you kind of see with some of these systems you'll, you'll pick a route let's say to a destination like today you're coming from london but then the interesting thing if you had a traffic jam it reroutes you onto another route but at the moment as far as i can tell it reroutes everybody onto the same new route Correct. so all you've done is create a new traffic jam elsewhere yeah. so there's not that kind of overarching intelligence but they are getting better though i they think like, yeah like yeah. sat 10 years ago would be terrible right but, yes. but now they're getting much better because there's more and more data that's like training the algorithms that are getting smarter the ai is get improving because you've got more but data it has to, to be two-way though because let's say all four of us here drove here today yeah. and we'd all drive down the road the same road for argument's sake and there's a traffic jam ahead i guarantee all of our sat navs would reroute us onto exactly the same road because none of them would talk to you and say i've put mark here i've put peter here i'm gonna put simon here so you ended up just causing the problem elsewhere, rather than that two-way communication of, right, we have 100 people trying to move, let's send 20 down here, 20 down here, and 20 carry on where they are. And that kind of connectivity that's, depends yes, on the data exchange. I can see how that would work. Anyway, listen, we'll, we shall leave it there. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, so thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for the opportunity. That's it for this episode. Thank you very much for your company. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And to find out more about how space is empowering industries between episodes, why not visit the Catapult website or you can join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. See you next time.